This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, radiotherapists. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and we have an exciting show for you. Today in the studio, we have two guests. Yes, it's a brace of guests. I'm giving you a soccer theme there. I don't know why, just I think I heard that the EPL was starting, so got in my head. So let me see, who have we got? First up, we have Dinesh Hewa Gamagay, who has just completed a study on clinician attitudes to medicinal marijuana. Do they think it's useful? Will they prescribe it? We will find out. Also joining the gang is Jared Bartle, a lawyer, lecturer and policy consultant specialising in the regulation of vice and criminal justice reform. <laughs> really, it sounds like everything I'm interested in, pretty much. <laughs> vice. Jared is joining us to discuss the ins and outs of decriminalising marijuana. It seems there's a theme developing this morning. I can feel the munchies coming on already. And, of course, we have our regular panellists over in the corner. Dr Capri is back from her tour of Italy, and she has a bone to pick with the Australian public. She reckons stigma is costing lives in various areas of healthcare. She's nodding. Also, of course, we have the panel beater, our trusty sociologist. Sociologist, keeping us medicos honest and helping us understand the broader context of the society in which we live. <laughs> panel beater always goes a bit mad at me for getting his intro wrong, but I reckon I've nailed it this week. We'll find out in a second. So sit back and relax. You're listening to Radiotherapy. And in a second, we'll have some news. So what do you reckon, panel Veda? Did I nail it? Did I nail it? Did I nail I, it? I um, I just look forward to the new job description each time I come each in. Week. It's, I really do, and it, it, you know, it sets me up for the week to come. Is yeah, it, this it, week I'll be a sociologist. Okay, I've got, I've got a feeling it's. I am a bit like those monkeys in a room typing randomly, <laughs> and if I do it for you know an infinitesimal amount of time, no, and a full amount of time, I'll eventually write Shakespeare. One day I'll get your title <laughs> correct, Capri. Good morning. You're back or from I Italy. Say buongiorno. Yeah. Buongiorno. Yes. Well, I was going to try and say common style or something, but then I realised it's probably French and I'm mixing up my languages. Well, no, it, that actually is an attempt at Italian, what you just did. I really only know, I, every language I know how to say, have you got a light, from the days when I was a student travelling around and smoking. Have you been So how was your tour of Italy? It was fantastic. It was nice being uh, in, immersed in my culture. Uh, so yeah, five weeks of warmth and um, yeah, it was really it was fantastic. Are you a northerner, Capri? No, southerner. Southerner. Really? Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> I would have picked you as a northerner. Yeah. I would have picked you as Milan. You're fashionable. Yeah, you know you're. Um, yeah. You're woke. Is that the word that young people use these days? I don't know. <laughs> you're looking the word? at woke. I've been watching too much uh, TV. Um, never heard that word. We're going to introduce our guests later, but why not? You're in the studio, so we may as well get a bit of a g'day from you. G'day, Dinesh. Hi, how are you going? Thanks for coming in this morning, no all the way up to Brunswick. And Jared. Hello. Hi, man. How Thank are you? you. You guys just happen to have dressed identical. We are identical. <laughs> it's it's quite knows. embarrassing. <laughs> that is so funny. Hey, we're going to kick off with our favourite bit, the news. That's why we play the Doctor Doctor theme. And Capri, you've got something that's been on your mind that's about uh, stigma impacting on healthcare. Yes, yeah, so uh, stigma... 
Uh, it's a hard word, stigmatisation of illness. It's uh, a well-known phenomenon within mental health and so I'm going to try and avoid mental health because I think uh, they get a fair bit of coverage when it comes to... And we've covered that heaps. Stigma. Yeah. yeah, so I'm going to broaden it to other illnesses that suffer the same problem and sort of highlight uh, why it is a problem and how it does impact and with some illnesses it might actually put people at risk of serious illness and even uh, death. So uh, stigma is said to be, I've got my definition here, the mark of disgrace that sets a person apart from others. So I always like a good definition. Um, and basically, it, when it comes to illness, it means that um, if you have a, if you label with a certain condition, you kind of lose your identity and you become stereotyped into this particular uh, group or of illnesses or illness. And then you might be subject to negative um, attitudes and potentially discrimination within your social group or employment-wise or um, etc. So uh, illnesses have been stigmatised for a long time. Think biblical leprosy syphilis uh, and there's a long list of other illnesses and the general theme seems to be there's some kind of judgment call that the people who have these particular illnesses somehow either have brought them brought brought it upon themselves you know deserve it certain kinds of people get these illnesses and i think um and as a result yeah they have this sort of negative attitude uh the problem with that is that not only is it other people's attitude towards those illnesses but the the um, affected person themselves feels like they somehow uh, are responsible and there's a lot of shame and embarrassment and they hide the condition, which is where it becomes a problem for the... Uh, medically speaking, because... Yeah, go on. I was, I, it's, I, was just gonna, I was just thinking about, you know, the illnesses you say, you know, so why do they get stigmatised? Obviously because we're scared stiff of them. Leprosy, you know, the amount of fear, syphilis, these were illnesses that killed just thousands of people and, and you know leprosy you were chopped out from the colony you know the community you had to go and live somewhere else yes so well well the ones i'm talking about are, for example uh making a bad choice for you know iv drug use sexual behaviors um you know having a tattoo in um <laughs> Sorry, everyone tattoo? out there. Oh, I was just trying to signal to Dr. Where Capri. Where was that tattoo? I was trying to signal to Dr. Capri. When Dr. Capri gets passionate about a medical topic, she has a tendency to bang the desk. Oh. And it comes through my I earphones. And I was trying doing. to signal that, and I ruined the conversation. <laughs> Apologies. Anyway, I need a signal for don't yeah, bang the desk. I'll put my hands behind my back. Thank you. Um, anyway, so, yeah, so bad choices or being some intrinsic failings. Like, Can I just, just pick weak. you up on that? Turn bad yeah. choices, or are you going to over? I was just going to add to that list: um, obesity and food, and the um, the moralism, and drug dependence, and drug dependence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or even even having some kind of innate um, um, weakness, like um, mental health, for example, as you know, should just be able to cope with these things. And uh, you know, erectile dysfunction is another one on that list. Um, Bloodborne diseases uh, like Hep B and Hep C, AIDS, etc. All of those have got some kind of judgment call. The reality is there aren't. It's not just one kind of person who gets these diseases. And in a minute, I'm going to talk about Hep C. But uh, the problem is, as I said before, patients don't uh, present to be 
tested or treated. So those people who actually have the disease obviously uh, might be treated for it. And then people who are at risk don't come in either. Yes, yeah, stigma is um, a massive barrier to yeah, accessing just, healthcare. Just, just being screened if you might be in a risk group. You might not even have the disease. And so um, Can I just, yeah, it's I a just big wanna, problem. I want to go back to one thing because you said bad choices and it made me bristle a little bit. Because I didn't say that. I'm saying that peop- that's the, that's the oh, perception. The oh, good, that, good, 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 that, good. You know, the judgment yeah. call is that people make bad choices and therefore that's why you got oh, AIDS. Sorry, or I misunderstood you. Yes. I thought you were suggesting that people might have got these things through bad <laughs> no, choices. No, no, no. That's yeah. that's part of the stigma. Yes, yeah, that's yes, part of the Yes, because there's this there's this myth that somehow the you know <coughs> the choices you make have a far bigger impact on your health care than bad luck. Yes. And the reality is even if you did, like if you took every illness that there is and you did everything right, you ate well, you exercised every day, you still only decrease your chances of most of the illnesses by about 30%. The bigger factors are luck, yes. genetics, yes. whatever you want to call yep. it, mm. what family you're born into, what country you're born into. It's, you know, and yeah, so that's why I picked you up on it. Yes, but yes. I obviously picked you up incorrectly and please go on and I'll stop trying to ruin your topic. <laughs> Promise? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I actually wanted to talk about hep C, which is one of these illnesses that is stigmatised. Um, and uh, the main reason being that the government has poured billions of dollars into a five-year program yep. where they've put the, the um, these novel, wonderful antivirals on the PBS at huge expense to the taxpayer and they're not being picked up. So there are 200,000 Australians who potentially have hep C or at risk of and they're not presenting for to be tested and therefore cured, essentially. They are curative treatments. And so, not only that, if we get enough of the population treated, we'll okay. get enough herd immunity that we eradicate hep C from our community. Just to, it, It's potentially yeah, eradicable. The, the, the aim was 2023. Um, but that that depended on the numbers that they that they predicted would they would be able to treat over that five year period. So why is Hep C stigmatised? Well, Hep C is a viral illness, and you contract it by coming into contact with infected blood that has the virus in it. And the stereotypical person who gets Hep C is the IV drug user. So people who um, are at risk, and they're not the only kinds of people who get Hep C. So anyone who's been exposed, and sure, if you have um, be engaged in um, practices where you've shared infected drug uh, equipment. And it's not just needles, actually. It's any of the equipment that's used. But then other people, like people who have come from um, countries where sterilisation isn't uh, as good as ours is in most places, like vaccinations, surgeries. So there's a, a risk group there. People have had needle stick injuries in the health um, uh, circles. And also people who, in Australia, who have inadvertently... Um, had tattoos or body piercings, etc., uh, in less than um, ideal uh, situations where the sterilisation techniques are up, up to scratch. So there's lots of people who, other than just IV drug users, who potentially could be at risk of this problem. And, and it's so sexually transmitted too, isn't it? Although it's low, low, hep low C, risk. really low. Is yeah, Hep right? B more so, but uh, yeah, Hep C really is, you know, blood born with um, that kind of those kind of risk factors. So I'm sort of out here trying to reduce the stigma and also encourage people who think they might be at risk or think they might have the disease. It's one of those things that if it is, as I said before, it's, it's actually curable uh, and it'd be a shame to think because the, 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 in the long term, if you have chronic hep C, the risk is you'll get cirrhosis, liver failure and potentially liver cancer and it'd be a terrible thing. We've got this cure, you know, that the government's 
um, given us essentially, uh, you know, something like twenty thousand dollars versus forty dollars now for for the treatment. So an incredible amount of money being spent. Am I right in thinking that Hep C is something that you can carry without feeling sick? Absolutely. So it's that's it's the silent. A silent, well, not so much a killer, but it causes a lot of uh, health problems. And you, in effect, uh, so if you, let's say you had um, contact or one of these risk fact, uh, risk-taking behaviours uh, 20 years ago, you could still have hep C and not know it. Right. And so it's those kind of people who are at risk we want to te- uh, test and treat. So people who are listening to you reel off the list of things that might make you vulnerable, um, they're going, yeah, 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 yeah. But geez, I feel okay. Yes. What, what's their motivation to go and see their GP? Because they could be cured and they could basically avoid getting cirrhosis and liver failure, yep. potentially. Jared, did you have a question? Oh, not a question, just so much as um, with, with stigmatisation and hep C, um, there is a researcher at uh, Monash University called Dr Kate Sear who talks about the fact that uh, that that when we stigmatise certain uh, diseases like hepatitis C, we actually ignore some of the, the laws that impact um, transmission of the disease. So secondary supply laws which ban people from actually sharing... A, providing needles to friends and things like that are a key factor in hepatitis C transmission. Um, and through stigmatising this illness, we actually kind of make the, the responsibility for it quite individual. Oh, that's a really good point. Rather than looking yeah. at the wider structures. Yeah. Mm. Comment? Um, no. I, that, I, <laughs> True. Yes. Hey, I uh, think that stands alone, that statement. Do we have a cure? Do we have a, you know, I mean, this is a silly question, but that's my specialty. Um, do we have a cure for stigma? What do we do to try and reduce this stigma? Oh, Is it this sort of stuff talking about it publicly? I'm glad you asked, Doolittle. Uh, what can we do? Well, awareness. Um, which is obviously what we're trying to do today. Uh, contact with people who have the disease, apparently, any of these diseases, apparently that helps with n- not so much, n- well, yeah, I guess normalising and making it real, you know, it's real people, it's not a stereotype, there's all different types of people who get these uh, diseases. Um, and just, yeah, community awareness campaigns. Look, awareness. Look, at, look at mental health, you know, the yeah. stigma there, I mean, there's still a long way to go, but it has made a, it has made a big difference. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. I went to a play last night. Uh huh. Now, it's very rare for me to do anything cultural, especially when there's a Collingwood match on. So it was a big deal getting me out of the house Mm -hmm. into a play. And there was only one reason why, and that is that Dr. Malpractice, our very own, one of our hosts of radiotherapy, one of the originals, started on 22 years ago, um, who... I don't think that he ever gets unmasked, but damn it, whose name is Rob Seltzer, has written a play. It's his play. He wrote it, Rob Seltzer's play. So I can't tell you about it without telling you his name. So bad luck, malpractice. You've just been unmasked. Um, Rob is a shrink and a writer. And uh, he's written this play called In Bed with the Bishops. It's a comedy of the, it's a comedy with the, well, it's about a psychiatrist. It's very funny. I went and saw it last night. It's at the Phoenix Theatre in Elwood. It runs for two weeks. Opening night was last night. You can get tickets through trybooking.com. I recommend it. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Three Triple R. But right now, as I pull out his introduction, we have Dinesh Hewa Gamagay, who is a, I'm guessing, fourth or fifth year medical student. Fourth. Fourth year medical student at Melbourne Uni. And he did a 12-month project examining clinician attitudes to medicinal marijuana in cancer. 
um, cancer clinicians, essentially. And uh, we asked him in here today to talk about the results. I should give... Do I have to give a conflict of interest? I worked with you on this project. So I know all about the yeah. project. So I should give a conflict of interest. Um, and that's why I invited you in. Um, so, Dinesh, g'day. Hi, how are you? Thanks for coming in, as I said no, earlier. Hey, just tell us, before we go into your medicinal marijuana... Why did you do a project? It's part of the course, isn't it? Yeah, so the um, research project is um, a six-month component of the last year of uh, the MD course uh, at Melbourne Uni, um, where you can um, choose to do a research project in in an area you're interested in. Um, Yeah, it's it's essentially an introduction into... uh, research life i suppose yeah, it's pretty um, cool really because you get i mean it's a one-year project and you do six months of it just uh, you know half a day a week and then six months full yes. time Sorry. and so you get to do you know some full-on i mean six months isn't a massive you know phd is three years full-time but at least it's a flavor which certainly in our day capri yeah. um there, there was none of, there was none of that sort of business no, absolutely not. um so uh anyway so to start the ball rolling um what interested you in studying this topic um i think with with medicinal cannabis, it's such a controversial uh, topic, which you know I think I'm drawn to those kind of to- uh, topics in general. Um, but particularly clinician attitudes, I think uh, attitudes are an important but uh, underrated part of uh, the medical uh, discussion. And I think it's more important when uh, we're talking about uh, somewhat controversial drug uh, that is medicinal cannabis. Um, with medicinal cannabis, I think attitudes of clinicians reflect the degree of acceptance of the drug uh, into the mainstream health community. Um, and the attitudes of clinicians, and particularly in other jurisdiction, jurisdictions, can be a barrier to patient access. Um, Legalisation is one aspect, but without clinician support, um, access may be limited. Yep. Um, I also think clinicians are well-placed to provide feedback about the current system, which is obviously new. Um, and their concerns can be used to inform policy changes moving forward. So what, in terms of, you know, the uses of medicinal marijuana, what are the potential, you know, medical uses? So, yeah, they can vary. Um, A Cochrane review in 2015 um, provided some evidence uh, for its use in spasticity. Um, Just to put everyone in the mm. picture. So a Cochrane review is that's the, the sort of the main group in the UK that compile all the evidence around stuff. And so you can jump onto their website or look at their publications and they'll basically tell you what evidence there is for pretty much any topic in healthcare that you want. And, you know, sometimes the evidence is super strong, you know, hundreds of thousand people studied across 10 different countries and everyone agrees. And sometimes the evidence is, is just... Clinicians think it's an okay idea, but there's, and they divide and they they list it all from sort of high level evidence to low level. They have categories. Anyway, mm. sorry, go on. Sorry. Yes, yeah, and so, so you've you've got different levels. Um, so essentially, they found for um, a moderate level of evidence for spasticity, um, which is why it's been uh, quite popular in the neurological field. Yep. Um, and then also for chronic pain. Chronic mm-hmm. pain. Yep. And then slightly less qual- uh, lower quality evidence for chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting. Yep. Uh, muscle wasting, yep, insomnia, and Tourette syndrome. Right, and part of the problem here, this is one of the things that gets everyone a little bit hot under the collar whenever we talk about medicinal marijuana. And I get this. Um, well, a number of things get people fired up: the legal side of it, the various names, the fact that um, marijuana has so many different compounds in it, and so people, you know, so it naturally, um, it's, you know, some of the compounds are quite different to each other and have very different, so it's mm. different roles in the body. Some get into the brain, some don't. So it's it's very complex. But one of the things that gets people quite confused is um, some people in the community believe marijuana can be used for almost anything, you know, and well, cannabis or whichever subject um, part you're thinking of in the in the actual plant, and so. 
teasing out which conditions there's evidence for and which conditions the evidence, what the strength of the evidence is. And it's it's probably fair to say none of the evidence is super strong. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, if you had to summarise it to someone, you'd probably say, look, it's a relatively weak medicine with a lot of potential that would be good to study further. But pretty much everyone who talks about it ends up saying, we need more evidence, yes, we, need more, exactly. we need more information. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the, you're exactly right. So the research into this area is rapidly evolving um, and I think the fact that we've legalised and, and made that step in the first place can actually help that along because I think research is obviously hindered by the legal status of, of the substance. So the fact that now we can a- access this for research purposes can help that. And like I said, p- some of that um, lack of clarity might be coming more because the the amount of evidence may be somewhat limited. Um, so have you uh, got a question, Capri? Uh, sort of a question and a statement. I'm, I have only been asked by one patient about... Um, Medicinal cannabis. And thanks for giving me that answer too. I appreciated it. What was the answer? No, you, I was the patient on the oh. phone. <laughs> yeah, go on. Um, and this is uh, a patient who's got a neurodegenerative condition, and um, and it was deemed by the her specialist that it wasn't um, going to be helpful. Um, but the patient is, is quite convinced it would be, and feels quite hard done by, um, and so. I'm just wondering, what is the demand out there? A lot of clinicians, GPs, primary care providers being asked about medicinal cannabis because it's not happening... You know, maybe... God, I'm going to put Dinesh on the spot on that one because that's what are the patient attitudes, whereas Dinesh's study was what are the clinician attitudes. But interestingly, we've also done that study. But I was going to say, surely you have numbers on clinicians who've been asked the question. Oh, sorry. Yes. So with the survey we conducted, um, this was at a uh, cancer-specific... Um, setting. Yes. Um, and the health professionals, which varied from um, medical practitioners, nurses, allied health and pharmacy, um, 60, 62%. So, uh, oh. you know, up to two thirds of, of clinicians were um, asked about uh, medicinal cannabis and they were patient inquiries. So, um, I mean, obviously, they're slightly different fields. We're talking about um, a big hospital that yes. is super that popular in cancer, though. I get asked all the time. I work in cancer and I, I get asked I all the time. I thought there'd be a, a, an increased demand because codeine got taken off the shelves. I thought people would be coming and asking for alternatives mm-hmm. for pain relief, but it hasn't really hasn't really come about. The, um, the scenario you just painted for us before about this patient coming in, they've been diagnosed with a degenerative disease, etc., and now they're asking the question... Um, What's on my mind is why won't that patient just self-medicate anyway? I mean, it may be um, there may be some issues around it, but it's geez, it's easy to get. There might be a lot of reasons for that. Firstly, they might want a specific part. They might want the cannabidiol oil, or I always get to say the names wrong, but they might want a specific part. They mightn't want to smoke. You know, so if right. you mind you, people self medicate with marijuana in a whole lot of ways. Not only smoking, some people make cookies, some people make tea, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Cetera, et cetera. So there's different ways they can do it. But they might want a specific part of the plant, and the pharmaceutical, um, the pharmaceutical products um, uh, are quite different to the um, recreational right. use, aren't they, Dinesh? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I think going back to the the original question with the patient, um, what. Uh, do they send off the request? Is that how uh, things look, were the not... The request was made to both myself and their specialist and the specialist deemed that it was not... Okay, yes, yeah, so there's no need to no, put up a, no, a request. No, because no request was made. No, yeah. yeah. And, and so, right. and so that's where 
potentially, um, yeah, the, and this is the, the thing with the barriers is that you can be stopped at the, the local practitioner level, let's yes. say the first person you go yes. talk to, who might not think um, it's appropriate, but then if they think it's appropriate, then they need to yes. consult a specialist generally, yes. um, especially because if it's a neurodegenerative condition, they will have a yeah. specialist looking yeah. after them. And obviously in this case, they were stopped at that level yes. and that person's taking on all the evidence that they have access the, to. Well, their beliefs, yeah, and, and their, their, their understanding their of attitudes. what's current, yeah. But then also, even if that person did um, think it's appropriate, they will then have to document it, um, add their information to the application. The application can then get sent to the government authority, which is at the moment the TJA and in Victoria, the local yeah. Victorian network. Um, and then you're still waiting on that approval too mm. for a product... Um, that is not being tested in in Australian um, therapeutic good standards, and so I think what you get is like just through that conversation, you got a lot of hurdles where yeah, you just can't get access. And yeah. maybe what the, what happens is that patients do go off and get get it from the local dealer. I think sorry, the vast majority of people currently are getting it, obviously through self medication, yeah. which concerns a lot of people because there is a lot of confusion about what uh, medicinal cannabis can and can't do. Mm. You know, there are a lot of people out there who believe, for example, that it cures certain conditions like cancer, where the evidence base is non-existent, essentially. There just is not. And so the current approval system, which changed in January this year and is being um, made easier and easier each month, it was just another round of making it easier. So, you know, just to give you a quick historical context, Victoria was right into it. They did a whole process that started a few years ago. They, um, The Victorian government introduced processes. Then the federal government came across the top of everything in January this year and said, we think it should be easy to get across Australia. And so they created the current rules and and which Victoria jumped on with. Everyone had to. And the current rules are essentially, you go and ask your doctor if you can have marijuana for a condition that you believe it will be helpful for. You know, say you've got nausea and cancer and you go along and say, I- I'd like to try um, one of these products. You discuss with the doctor which product might be useful for you and there's a whole lot of different ones, tablets, spray, nasal sprays, drops, this, that and the other. You figure out whether that product is available in Australia and then if the doctor believes on the mm. basis of their analysis of the um, information that there is a case for you to try the um, marijuana-related product in your condition. That's all that's required. Then they just have to get the online form. It, uh, that, that they have to then apply for it because none of these products, apart from one, are currently approved on the TGA, mm. and that's one particular drug um, form of it for just spasticity and multiple sclerosis. So everything else, you have to apply for a special um, mm. permit. You can't just write a script. Mm. That's how it currently works. So mm. when you go to the government, Dinesh, like you were saying, the government doesn't look at the evidence and say yes or no. They take the doctor's word for it is my understanding. Doctor's word for... That, the, that it's worth a try in this condition. So all you have to get is the patient wants it and the doctor agrees that there's an evidence base to try it and mm. then the doctor applies for the permit. I don't think the government looks at the says to the doctor, why do you think this is a good idea? I think that that's left to the doctor, but I could be wrong. But that's where I'm not uh, too sure. But at, what does happen is you send the application across and then it can be approved or... Or not approved. Right. Um, oh, I think that's enough. Then. Yeah. So, so that is. Um, you, you do have to wait for panel. approval. Yeah. Um, and know. so, with I think it's section eight. Um, sorry, schedule eight uh, substances. Um, is there, in your experience, the approval for those kind of? Um, I, I don't poisons. know what happens when it gets to the government, but Matt, you could well be right. No, um, so it's not, it's not way, the doctor's word. There is then a, a, another level of approval. Is that fair enough? Um, and that's where I think. The patient survey found that um, 
there was that barrier that you 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 do send off the paperwork and it, it comes back as being not approved. I'm not sure what they look at in Fair terms enough. of making the decision. The, the good point what? you make, though, is if the GP... Like, I'm, I'm trying to be very open-minded about it, but for me, and I'm I'm very happy to start prescribe. Well, very happy. I'm, I'm comfortable with the idea of prescribing uh, medicinal cannabis if all the structure and all the evidence and all the safeguards are in place. But at the moment, I don't feel like I have enough information about that. I'm not confident to do it. And also the bureaucratic you know, stuff sort of... I'd, I'm glad not more people have asked me about it. That's how I So feel. let's go to the study. Dinesh, what did the study show in this um, in relation to what Capri just said? Yeah, so just as a little bit of background, we, we surveyed um, health professionals, um, I think I mentioned this before, uh, medical practitioners, allied health, pharma- pharmacists, as well as um, nurses in a, in a cancer setting um, through an, uh, an online an anonymous survey um, asking about attitudes and beliefs, um, exactly what uh, Capri was mentioning. And what we found were um, exactly what you just said. Um, on the whole, uh, there was a lot of um, concern about the lack of clinician knowledge. So people were aware of the legislative changes, um, which has been you know quite uh, vocal in the media, um, but a significant proportion um, re- reported having those patient inquiries but stated they weren't inf- uh, sufficiently informed about medicinal cannabis, um, its evidence base, and potential ju- drug interactions. So quite important when prescribing any um, medication to a patient. Um, and what we found were these conversations were having were, were being had without um, enough information for the uh, the clinician prescribing it. See, funnily enough, you know, I've been looking at this for ages now, I still don't feel sufficiently informed, as evidenced by the fact I'm not, I've never tried to prescribe it yet. Um, So, mind you, you know, I'm a shrink, so there's not, you know, they come along and they talk to me about whether they want it, but then I'll tell them to speak to your oncologist or speak to your radiotherapist or speak to your surgeon, Um, you know, your primary, so it's not really my role, but I don't feel sufficiently informed. I'm curious as to why the default position isn't give it a shot. Why is the default position and the response, um, it's got to be likely to be helpful before it's approved? Why isn't the default position, give it a shot and see what happens? Because we're, you know, it's about the science, you know, like that whole evidence-based thing and and also the the risk of... One article I read, I love this term, you've got... The risk is you get this um, diagnostic leakage, you know, so all of a sudden it's good for everything. And I think... (laughs) Oh, sorry. No, no, no. It's good for everything. So I think there needs to be some kind of boundary when it comes to medicinal cannabis. But I think that's part of my point. As a prescription. If If the default position was give it a shot and we collect the data... You know, um, then you've got you've increased the population who are engaged with the experiment, so to speak. Well, I think the current, the current criminal laws that are applying would probably be a barrier to that. In that, you know, if a doctor is over prescribing cannabis, they're potentially supporting someone's recreational habit or you know a financial business on the side for them. Yeah, I think so. Too. I think the give it a shot. The reason give it a shot cannot work in this. Now, if it was like Panadol, if someone came to me and said, "Listen, I've got a twitchy left arm," and one of my friends has a twitchy left arm, and they said Panadol works, I'd probably say give it a shot. Whereas the problem with um, marijuana, of course, is its history is it's an illegal drug. And given that our role as health practitioners is to be gatekeepers of the evidence base for stuff. Now, of course, you can go to the whole alternative industry that's largely testimonial based. Mm -hmm. But if you want the evidence based approach, we have to um, 
favour the evidence and especially when we think there's the side effect that people might think that we're saying marijuana is safe. And we're not, for yeah, And we're not giving an opinion out there that whether it should be legalised or not. We're not giving an opinion about whether you should smoke it when you're at a party. They're coming to, we're giving the medical opinion and we don't want to impact on a debate that we don't have a, um, a skin in the game on. Yes. I think that's, that is probably how I feel as well, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I take your point. I think it's, um, I think it's a good, good one from a, from a, no, a non-medical you know, uh, perspective. I think um, the why not um, argument has its merits. The only problem is trying to convince um, the medical sort of community that they're going to take on board. What I suppose is a bit of a you know, stigma, a bit of risk, and um, just something that they don't want to hang their whole reputation on, particularly with um, that evidence based um, mind frame. The the other thing is that I think a lot of um, a lot of the medical practitioners particularly uh, are worried about um, obviously a very evidence-based approach but also um, they, they feel that they're, they're, the conventional methods that they're using already um, are potentially on par, if not better. Yeah, for, for most I hear that a lot too. So people come along and say, I want to try this for chronic pain, yet they haven't tried the first 10 most common treatments. Yeah, and they're jumping resort. to it. Yeah. yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And hello, everyone. You're listening to Radiotherapy. Oh, it's a big morning. We are debating furiously during the breaks on the show about uh, medicinal marijuana. Uh, in the studio this morning, you've got myself, Dr. Doolittle. You've got Dr. Capri. We've just been listening to um, Dinesh Hewa Gamagay talking about his medical student project. And now I'm going to hand pass over to the lovely, the divine <laughs> panel beater to introduce the next part of the show. Yeah, we've got um, Jared Bartle uh, with us. And um, as we heard at the top of the show with um, your introduction, Doolittle, um, yep. Jared pays a bit of attention to vice. So... We're going to get to talking about the, the, this discrepancy between decriminalisation and cannabis and general community attitudes, mm-hmm. so a discretion, um, discrepancy between the current law and public opinion. But before we do that, can you just tell us a little bit about this in, um, interest in vice more broadly? Yeah, well, it's a very exciting topic, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> vice in general. Uh, so my background is as a criminal lawyer. Um, so I worked as a criminal lawyer for a couple of years uh, and from working as a criminal lawyer kind of... Uh, uh, began to see that, that there was actually lots of issues with current criminal justice policy and that led me into being more of a policy consultant and an advocate for criminal justice reform uh, as well as, you know, having lecturing and, and research roles in academia in on this topic of vice generally. Um, my, my interest in vice is because vice laws, whether it's the criminalisation of drugs or the criminalisation of sex work or something like that, they're actually quite unusual categories of the criminal law. Uh, usually when we think of the criminal law, it's about uh, protecting one person from the actions of another. But when we're talking about the criminalisation of vice, it's really about either protecting someone from themselves <laughs> or protecting you know wider society. A, a colleague of mine just did a talk in Vietnam and the department uh, that handles illicit drug policy in Vietnam is called the Department of Social Evils, <laughs> which I think is very indicative of how these types of criminal laws have come about and what they're trying to to target. One of um, my favourite euphemisms for um, grass pot marijuana or whatever is, is the devil's lettuce. Yes, the devil's lettuce. <laughs> I've never it's heard very, that one. 
very indicative of how we think about uh, criminalising. Uh, All of a sudden, I feel like a salad. <laughs> <laughs> With a little something extra in it, maybe. Um, so I, I wrote this article for The Conversation, um, which which uh, came about because the, the uh, Tasmanian Greens did a poll uh, of attitudes towards decriminalising cannabis in Tasmania. Now, it's important that we're, we're correct on terms here. People get yep. confused about decriminalisation versus legalisation of cannabis. So decriminalisation would involve the removal of criminal offences associated with possession and use use of cannabis, okay? So you wouldn't go before a court if you were found um, possessing or using cannabis. Now, there might be something else in place. You might be diverted to some sort of health authority or maybe even pay what's known as a civil penalty, which is like a fine, but you don't have a criminal record associated with it. That's what we mean by decriminalisation. That's a separate discussion to legalisation. Legalisation means that there is a retail sale of recreational cannabis. Like cigarettes. Like cigarettes, exactly. It can be regulated, um, but it's the retail sale um, of cannabis, which is separate to decriminalisation. Now, in Tasmania, um, they found that 59% of Tasmanians uh, support decriminalisation of cannabis. And my article in the conversation was to talk about the fact that that's that's actually not an unusual finding. Um, We have a survey called the um, National Drug uh, Household Survey, uh, and that occurs every three years, and it looks at attitudes towards illicit drugs and um, only 26% in the latest survey sorry that occurred in 2016 only 26% of Australians support cannabis possession and use being a criminal offence so it's it's quite uh, in keeping with with Australians attitudes towards towards cannabis only 26% only 26% support it being a criminal offence and Mm. you did some you looked at age groups so there's some distinction to be made there uh, in terms of so legalization, the biggest difference occurs with age groups. There, younger people are more supportive of legalization. Um, people who use illicit drugs are obviously more supportive of both decriminalization and legalization. Um, it's interesting. So even when we're looking at um, how people should uh, deal with someone who is found in possession or use of illicit drugs, for all illicit drugs, people would prefer that there was a referral to some sort of treatment. Um, in, instead of instead of some sort of punishment, how does that you know twenty six percent? So a quarter of the public thinks it should be, remain a crime, and three quarters don't. Essentially, mm-hmm. how does that rate to other drugs? What do they think? What does the public think about heroin? What do they think about ecstasy? Do you know? So that the this household survey asked about uh, legalization yep. of those drugs, not de- not uh, criminalization, decriminalization, or criminalization. Um, but generally, people are less supportive of decriminalising, you know, harsher illicit drugs. Or what we, would be described as Do we know why the community has a softer attitude to marijuana compared to other drugs? Well, I would say it's because 35% of Australians have actually used cannabis. Right. So they've probably had more of an experience with it or, you know, know someone who does. Um, and do you think, well, just back on the age thing, because that caught my eye, mm. I found it curious that uh, the least in favour of decriminalisation um, were the people over 60, 70. Yes. Right? And I couldn't help but be stereotypical about the hippie generation of the, of the 60s and, you know, um, you know, flower power and, yep. you know, you, you just immediately associate it with 
you know, a yeah, little bit of wacky years, tobacco. 40, 50 years ago, those are 20. So the 70-year-olds so, so should, 70 should be all, like, <laughs> waving the flag. Well, there is a bit of that, not not 60s generation, but it's actually surprising when you read the, the survey that the, the average age of a regular cannabis user is about 35. Um, younger people seem to be decreasing in their illicit drug use, wow. uh, which is quite quite an interesting trend. You know, we're a boring generation, Gen, Gen Y. Well, <laughs> my experience is, so I, I stand in front of Gen Y a lot, <laughs> um, most days of the week in some form of fashion. Um, my sense is that they're certainly drinking less. Mm. They're they're drinking a lot less, and um, uh, but they're still on the on the disco biscuits. Yeah, not so much disco on the way. Janesh, <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry to comment. Uh, is that is that across the board with um, with drugs or just marijuana? In terms of not using, no, no, all all illicit drugs really down reducing. in terms of yes, wow. yeah, in terms of use of illicit wow. drugs for I'm, younger I'm generations. So, I'm just so proud of my son. <laughs> <laughs> well, is because he's still using, or <laughs> is it a bit boring? His really? generation, his generation, they're behaving, they're taking notice of their parents. When yes. I say don't do drugs, drugs are bad. They're listening. Yes, yes. and yeah, I, I haven't read any good explanations as to why that's the case, but I wonder if it is, you know, digital technology. There's less. You, you socialise in a way that's not going out, doing all drugs together, um, and, and I think that's probably going to have an impact. I, I suspect, and I've got no evidence for this other than the conversations I have with these um, undergraduates at university each week, um, I've got a sense there's an increased moralisation coming back to what you were talking about, Capri. I think there is some kind of moralisation going on. Um, there's definitely a tendency... Um, I would start to correlate things like enthusiasm for health and well-being mm. um, amongst young people. There mm. certainly wasn't a, a disposition when I was an undergrad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I don't know if it's necessarily a stigmatization because because younger people are supportive of drug law reform and and they don't tend to have negative attitudes towards drug users. But we talk about um, in in harm reduction about the normalization of non-use, and there's probably more of a normalization of not using drugs that's occurring in that group. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back, everyone. As I was just saying, we're in the middle of a conversation about decriminalisation of marijuana with um, Jared Bartle, who's a lawyer who specialises in um, these topics. Jared, just to, you know, what are the arguments for decriminalisation? Why do people want to decriminalise? Well, I think there's a couple of arguments. Uh, the first one um, is, you know, if people don't view somebody's personal drug use as as something warranting criminalisation, they're not going to support it. And I think there's an argument that resources that are currently going towards prosecuting that person, charging that person, you know, policing that behaviour might actually be better allocated towards health initiatives. That That's one of the main uh, reasons behind it. If something is criminalised and they convicted and there are lots of programs in, in place to avoid someone found possession of cannabis being convicted but if they are convicted they will have a criminal record that has consequences both for work and also for travel um, and then in terms of what's often called harm reduction initi- initiatives i'm talking broadly illicit drugs here things like pill testing things like safe injecting rooms current criminal laws which uh, criminalise possession and use actually are barriers to having those types of harm reduction initiatives outrolled into the country. So, you know, broadly decriminalisation is, is viewed as expanding um, the kind of health interventions that are available for that demographic. So, 
when you say the current laws, what are the current laws? So current laws in Australia, so around cannabis. So cannabis is uh, criminalised in all states and territories except for the ACT, Northern Territory and South Australia. Um, they don't have criminal laws for uh, cannabis under 25 grams or two plants. So that's what we call criminalisation by law. There is a form of de facto criminalization that also kind of occurs in each state and territory, which is that there are, there are cannabis cautioning schemes. So if somebody's found in possession of cannabis for the first time, there's an automatic diversion. So they don't get a conviction. They don't get a criminal record. Um, that, that's, that's a little bit different from decriminalizing something outright because it's still on the books. We just have ways of diverting people out of the, the system. So one of the things we hear from time to time, especially around elections, is how our courts are full to the brim mm. and um how much of our courts a bit time is being taken up by dealing with cannabis a certain percentage of it, uh, I don't have exact numbers, but uh, obviously the magistrate's court is the the, the um, court that has the most people going through it at any given moment. And uh, a large part of uh, the offences going through that are cannabis offences, wow. particularly because current schemes, um, somebody is charged, they have to attend court, then they need to be put on a, a diversion scheme. And then there's a whole you know separate area of the court which deals with diversion. Those diversions then need to be monitored. It's actually quite costly the way that we are dealing with illicit drugs. So where's the resistance to decriminalisation coming from? Well, as I said earlier, um, the, the, uh, the idea of current criminalisation is that it's to protect people from themselves. And I think people have in their head that these criminal laws are stopping people using cannabis. Now, we have evidence to say that that's, that's actually not the case. It, most surveys say that people can get access to cannabis if they want it. As I said, 35% of Australians have tried cannabis at some point and about 10% have used in the last 12 months. Clearly, people are getting access to cannabis, but people do think that if we decriminalise, that that would somehow create this this great increase in people using cannabis. Who, who are these people that you're referring to? Well, oh, God. <laughs> Give me the names. So, no. yeah. I mean, is it, is it the police? Is it the legal yeah, look, system? Po- police tend to be to be more in opposition. I, I'm actually doing some some research work for for a program that I'm pitching um, to to the SBS, and I've been trying to find academic and medical opposition to decriminalisation of illicit drugs, and it's actually very difficult. But um, yeah, because having said that, I hear a lot of it. I hear people Do talking you? all the time about you know, for a start, they think um, the risks are grossly underestimated. And we do know the risks. There is an increased risk of psychosis at small. We know that you've got about a 10% chance of addiction if you use it. We know that it causes anxiety in some people. Some people believe it's a gateway drug. I think that's been debunked. Definitely. Some people still say that. And, of course, there's risks during pregnancy and stuff like that. So we know there are risks. And I think the public... um, There's a a feeling amongst a lot of my colleagues that the the public just doesn't realise that this isn't as safe as they think. Oh, absolutely. And I I think decriminalisation to me is not uh, an advocacy in favour of use. I think it's more talking about under what legal model can we best manage health risks? Yeah, that's Um, a great way to think of it. Because, you know, 
all, all all drug use, uh, you know, carries carries health risk. Lots of lots of behaviours carry health yeah. risks, and we, we've just got to think of how should we structure our laws in a way which actually best deal with this type of issue. Yeah. Hey, we're going to have to draw this conversation. We could take this conversation, obviously, for another hour quite comfortably, and we probably will over the next few months because it's a hot topic. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into Radiotherapy today. Let me just remind you, Rob Seltzer, Dr Mel, practice play um, in bed with the bishops. Look it up, trybooking.com. Melbourne Writers Festival's coming up. I've got a whole lot of gigs under my other name, Steve Ellen. Um, so if you want to come to any of my... Um, MWF gigs, feel free. Someone um, put a nice post on our Facebook page just now saying if doctors or patients want to know about medical marijuana, there's a whole lot of places that run courses and uh, James put a specific link on one of our comments. So jump on board for that. Thank you, Dinesh Hawagamagay, for coming in and talking. Did I get that wrong the last time? No, I'm saying well, well done on uh, get, having a reasonable pronunciation of this long shrinking last night. <laughs> thank you, Dinesh. And thank you, Jared Bartle, yep. lawyer extraordinaire for um, unravelling all the mysteries. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.